you know, we're practicing with and talking about soul making and soul as almost uh, kinds of fundamental concepts, fundamental orientations, fundamental commitments. But it's actually quite hard, uh, perhaps impossible, to really uh, define soul-making or soul uh, completely, to really fully capture uh, what soul-making is, for example, to pin it down. And I think perhaps that's quite appropriate, it's quite right, there's a truth in that impossibility. There's something here between the poetry of these concepts. They resist full uh, explication, full capturing. Uh, There's a balance between the poetry and the science, if you like, uh, of this, uh, of what soul-making is and what these concepts are there. Uh, We want to understand mechanisms, processes, dynamics, what's involved in soul-making, how it works. But there's also uh, an artistic um, dimension to all this, a poetic dimension to the words we use. We've talked about this before. Something in the nature of soul and soul-making makes them actually appropriately uh, hard to define. Because of that balance, if you like, between the art and the science of what we're involved in, then uh, it doesn't mean, it doesn't, just because things are hard to do, it doesn't mean we should just abandon any attempt at making delineations or definitions. Can we approach uh, a definition or start with definitions in ways that are actually helpful, without locking them down, getting too tight, thinking that we've captured something in some watertight definition or truth or whatever, can we just use the defining process, if you like, the defining movement in ways that are helpful? What for? To serve soul-making. The definitions that we come up with are in the service of soul-making. And for that reason, they need to be relatively light, at least I hold them relatively lightly, relatively loosely. They're just serving the movement of soul-making. Okay, so what is this soul-making? We've just been circular already, uh, but uh, let's say, what is this? What is soul-making when we um, use that term? Having said what we just said. We could kind of say something... Uh, abstract about, or give a kind of relatively abstract definition of soul-making, and say that soul-making is um, a certain relationship with experience, but a certain dynamic relationship with experience, because it is a uh, relationship that involves the opening and the expansion of ways of experiencing, ways of knowing, ways of conceiving and imagining and relating to experience. So soul-making is this expansion of my sensing, my conceiving, my perceiving, and an expansion in the way that includes the imaginal. So an expansion of the sensing, conceiving, perceiving of both object and subject. 
and already there I couldn't help but use the word imagine and that w also makes it hard as a lot of these concepts that we're using kind of imply each other so there's a circularity of definition it's okay that kind of more abstract definition, uh, well, it, it may well sound really abstract. If, you, if you're quite familiar, if you've done a lot of work with soul-making, you'll actually recognize that uh, there's a, uh, an, an insight there that captures well in a kind of general principle something fundamental to soul-making. If you have a little less experience, it might just sound way too vague or open or, as I said, abstract. But you will recognize soul-making in and from your own experience. In, in your own life, you will recognize uh, the, the experience, if you like, of soul-making. When there is for us a sense of meaningfulness in regard to something, or some movement. Uh, not so much meaning as it means X or Y, but meaningfulness, the pregnancy of all uh, that's involved there, when there are m multiple resonances for us in the soul, when there is um, beauty, this is also characteristic of soul-making, has a sense of beauty, wide range of possible kinds of beauty. Um, the imaginal, uh, image and fantasy is involved in soul-making for the most part. Uh, and because there's image and fantasy in the sense of the imaginal sense of image and fantasy, that involves, um, starts to involve, we start to notice, it brings in other dimensions of what we're, uh, of the image, other dimensions of what we're perceiving come to be sensed by us. Reverence is also characteristic of um, the, the, the experience of soul-making. Reverence is from uh, the word, the English word, our English word is from the, uh, uh, the word to revere, obviously, which is from the Latin reverere, to be in awe of. So to be in awe of and to respect deeply. And this has something to do with the sense uh, when there is soul-making, opening to something bigger than us. So it's connected with this opening of other dimensions, connected with the sense that goes um, with these experiences of the unfathomability of something, the inexhaustibility of, for instance, an image or uh, an, uh, the perception that we're having inexhaustible in its meaning, meaningfulness, and exhaustible in, in, in different ways. Different kinds of love are also present in soul-making. So soul-making usually, uh, or I'd say always, has quality of some kind of quality of love in it. Again, it might not be obvious at first. So all these are ways, aspects of soul-making, ways that we recognize soul-making in our experience uh, at times in our life. And I would include what we're going to get to uh, shortly. Um, I would include that soul-making involves eros. Uh, when we ask what does soul mean, and if we try to define soul... Um, we could say soul is a perspective that brings soul-making, that um, gives a feeling and supports and opens a feeling of soulfulness at any time. 
And you see the circularity of all these definitions. It's, it's the only way we can do this. Um, better to say that soul is not so much a perspective, but uh, a set of perspectives, and uh, a potentially increasing or an open set of perspectives. In other words, there are more and more perspectives that we uh, open to that themselves open sol- soulfulness and support soulfulness in different ways. So we could say, um, if we want to avoid talking of soul as if it's a thing or an entity, we could just regard it It's a way of relating, it's a way of looking. It's an open and expanding, potentially expanding set of perspectives that supports and opens and gives rise to and ignites soul-making and the sense of soulfulness. If we wanted to talk about soul as an entity, as if it were an entity, then we could say something like, soul is that which relates this way. Which way? In that set of perspectives, that opening, uh, open and uh, potentially expanding set of perspectives that support soulfulness. Soul is just that which relates that way. That in the citta, if you like, that relates that way. And so in the opening set of perspectives, it will include uh, image and fantasy, it will include the realm of imaginal perception and all that that implies and involves. So as I said before, you recognize this, uh, the unfathomability, the inexhaustibility, the sense of the autonomy of um, an image, the mystery, divinity perhaps, comes in the dimensionality that opens up that we start to recognize more and more in the imaginal experience. Now, we said yesterday that Eros is central in this uh, uh, process of soul-making, in the movement of soul-making. It's a fundamental, indispensable component, if you like, if we talk in that language. So how does that work? How does that work? Uh, If you recall our uh, small definition, what we were calling the small definition of Eros, we said the Eros is the desire, the wanting for more contact with, uh, more connection with, more intimacy with, more knowing of, more penetration of, and more opening to something, and what we're calling an erotic object, uh, the beloved other. So there's quite a sort of small, humble, relatively dry-sounding definition. Um, we could add to that, just to the noticing there are certain aspects um, of the experience of Eros that uh, um, we will notice in our experience. Um, so, for example... Eros uh, involves, there will be uh, some kind of feeling or sense of juiciness, we could say, uh, of uh, different kinds of love, um, some kind of love in the experience of Eros. And there's many different kinds of love. There will be some kind of sense of energization and also of beauty. We could point to these um, as aspects of Eros as well as just the sense of attraction, of course. Now, we can nuance that uh, and go into that in all kinds of ways. But let's also point out, in terms of aspects of the experience of Eros, um, uh, a couple of other ones. Arousal. 
Okay, now by arousal, I don't just mean um, sexual energy or sexual attraction, sexual arousal. It, c- it can be that. That's, that's uh, absolutely possible, of course, as, as one uh, manifestation of eros. Uh, it may be that if someone um, hooks you up to some kind of uh, scientific measuring equipment, measures your, I don't know what they call, skill skin galvanization response or whatever it is and measures of brain waves and stuff that they can measure that there's arousal um, even with um, non-sexual eros in, in the way that we're using it to, in the way that we're uh, calling part of our range of what eros means certainly that's possible uh, but what we can say as part of eros is an arousal of interest Okay, so something in the being is um, captivated, let's say, in a good sense, captivated. It's, it's uh, attracted, and there is this arousal of interest. Because mind and body, chitta and uh, body are um, always connected, that arousal of interest and the openness that usually goes with eros, um, this tends to energize, arouse, and energize the energy body. Okay, so we're not necessarily talking about sexual arousal here, so that's included. But there will be um, uh, an arousal of the energy body, let's call it that. The energy body, will it will feel energized. It will feel um, opened and probably aligned. And this we've said is characteristic of imaginal practice too. This may be super uh, uh, remarkable and intense, this um, opening, alignment, energization of the energy body. It may be very, very subtle. Um, oftentimes it uh, it can be there without feeling at all agitated, etc. Um, so it's not an unpeaceful feeling. We'll come back to that. Um, that well, let's come back to that the energy body stuff. So arousal, as well as uh, attraction, what we could call juiciness or aliveness. Um, some kind of love, energization, beauty, all that. There's also two other aspects we could draw attention to um, in the experience of Eros. One is um, dynamism, and uh, one is uh, what, I'm, what I'd like to call autoeroticism. Uh, eros is dynamic in the sense you can you can hear it because the wanting, the attraction, isn't the, there's a, a dynamic. Uh, attraction, movement towards, if you like, the object, the erotic object. But Eros has a dynamism beyond that, which uh, I need to explain a little bit more in order to explain the fullness of that dynamism. And similarly with the aspect of autoeroticism. So, if you recall that small definition of Eros, um, I don't know whether this stood out to you, that word more. Wanting, desiring more contact with, more connection with, more intimacy with. Uh, This more is extremely significant. Uh, 
classically Eros uh, was part of a band of uh, gods or demigods that were called the Erotis and uh, there was Eros and one of them was called Pothos and Pothos is this infinite longing always wanting more, always looking if so to speak to the horizon, to the beyond there's an infinite yearning that goes with Eros so to speak, so Eros is always accompanied by Pothos and, and that in our sort of more dry uh, definition, that's the more, more contact. So this, this wanting more is not, is not to imply that the connection that we have and the contact that we have is not fulfilling. There's not this kind of um, poverty there or thirst or uh, in the sense of we're not, uh, we don't have a sense of fullness there. So part of, and actually could, could say one of the aspects of the experience of Eros is delight. There is delight in the present contact, and the more in, in the definition of Eros may just be a, a kind of wanting that delightfulness and the magic of that connection to, to continue, wanting to linger in, in that magic, in that, in that beauty, in that opening. This more may not be that obvious in the experience. It may not stand out in the experience. Um, it may be really quite subtle. I'm emphasizing it, though, heuristically, uh, for heuristic purposes. Uh, in other words, for educational purposes. I want to um, draw something out here. I want to explain something about the process or the dynamic of soul-making, because it hinges, if you like, or it's driven by, propelled by, that word more. It's extremely important. So how does this work? What, what are we talking about here? When there is eros, there is this pothos with it, there's this desire for more uh, contact, connection, intimacy, knowing, penetration, and opening. As I said, all those words used in, in as full a sense, each in as full a sense as possible. This desire for more, um, it will propel a, a, a motion and dynamic that can then unfold in different ways. Now, one of the ways it can unfold is that if I am open to the imaginal, the realm of the imaginal and the realm of imaginal perception of this uh, beloved other, of this erotic object, whatever it is, if I allow the imaginal um, aspect of experience to open up, um, the imaginal dimensions, if I respect that, if I tune and open to that, then what's possible is that the movement there of the psyche with the eros and this desire for more actually starts um, finding more, if you like, discovering more in the beloved other in the object. Um, it also, we could say, creates more. It creates and discovers more. What more? More in the imaginal. So that the, the very, my beloved other, she, he, they, whatever it, if it's a, 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 an object, it's, it, it becomes more through the erotic contact, through the erotic connection and um, sensing and gaze, etc. So that my beloved other, uh, 
she, he, they, um, starts to reveal to me, um, in through my gaze, um, through my sensing, uh, any of the senses, other facets, new facets. They become more complicated, more manifold. They have other dimensions, other um, sides or faces, facets, etc. Um, so, for example, she, he, they become... Uh, a, a theophany, or they they become a, a, a goddess, as well as who they are. I know them. I know their history. I know uh, all their physical being. It's not as if that all disappears, but as well as that obvious physical dimension that we can all kind of generally agree on, there are other dimensions, if you like, of their being that I start to perceive. Um, so the process of more, it kind of if you like, thrusts in, penetrates more, to reveal more, opens more, it discovers and creates more in the erotic beloved. Um, So, she, he, they start to uh, uh, gradually, in steps, show me more faces through the imaginal. Start to perceive their multidimensionality, this um, image coming through them, this god, goddess, or angel, or what, whatever it is, and all kinds of uh, specific examples we could give here. Now, because they are now more complicated, they're the jewel of their being, if you like, is more multifaceted, shows me more faces, there's light shining from um, all of them, or more uh, m- mystery there. Um, they're, so to speak, um, uh, bigger as an image, more complex as an, as an imaginal perception. There's more to be attracted to. They're more mysterious, more unfathomable, more inexhaustible. There's more... Uh, different kinds of shades of light and characters shining out of them. And so the eros is then further inflamed, further amplified through this increase of the image. You understand? Through this making manifold and dimensionalizing of the image. It doesn't all happen at once. It happens, you know, can be really uh, a process in steps, or usually is, uh, uh, over time. So the eros is inflamed more, and that again, has this wanting more in it, and so the process goes around, it inflates, uh, amplifies, expands, widens, deepens, complicates the image even more, the erotic uh, imaginal other. As this goes on in the steps, at some point, uh, it kind of knocks on the walls of my concept, my ideation, my belief structure about who this is that I'm encountering now, what a person is, what the soul is, what image is. My uh, conceptual belief system is getting pushed on to expand with the expansion of the imaginal perception. You understand? So, uh, and that too then adds multidimensionality, in this case a kind of conceptual multidimensionality uh, and complication and deepening I cannot, um, if, if, if my concept, my conceptual structure and belief system, my conceptual framework of who they are and who I am and what psyche is and all that, is pushed out, I cannot just believe this simple, flat, reductionist, one-dimensional view of who they are and who I am and all that. 
So this further creates more attractive depth, complexity, yumminess, etc. And that further inflames the eros. So gradually and in stages, the whole process kind of um, cycles on itself, you could say, uh, feeds itself, nourishes itself. All these aspects, the eros, the image, and the imaginal dimensions, and the concept, the ideation, um, start to mutually inseminate each other, to mutually inflame each other, to mutually uh, deepen, widen, enrich, expand each other. So you've got the eros, uh, the uh, what I'm going to call psyche, uh, just uh, and the logos. I'll explain what I mean. Eros, psyche, logos. Eros is the eros, as we've explained, this movement. The psyche is really the total... I can use it in two ways, this word psyche. So I, I can mean by it just um, the totality of the, the chitta, really, the psyche. Um, I can also mean, and what I mean in this instance here, is psyche. I'm using the word psyche to mean the totality of imaginal perception uh, present in the moment. Okay, and then the last word, logos, uh, that I'm using as part of this dynamic, the eros, psyche, logos dynamic. The last word, logos, means my concepts, my ideation, my um, set of beliefs, my conceptual framework. So these three, eros, psyche, logos, um, the, the movement of eros and that particular kind of desire, the uh, totality of the imaginal perception, in the moment, and the ideation wrapped up in all that, the concept, the conceptual frame wrapped up in all that, eros, psyche, logos, they, as I said, um, come together to mutually feed, nourish, support, open, widen, deepen, inseminate, fertilize, ignite each other um, in what we call the soul-making dynamic big part of what that does is it widens, deepens, enriches, complicates, makes more manifold and more yummy uh, the erotic object. So they become, for instance, a theophany. So they're expressing some kind of angelic dimension or nature that's coming through them in addition to their being obviously I know this person I know their said their physical history their uh, psychological history and all that um, but uh, they they start to have theophanic or angelic dimensions and there's also uh, the movement into cosmopoesis which come back to the 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 imaginal movement starts spreading beyond just that object start spreading to the world. Now, we've talked about this in other, other retreats, so you should be familiar with that movement of cosmopoesis. Now, this, what we're calling this eros-psychologos dynamic, or this soul-making dynamic, soul-making process, what I've just described, uh, could just keep unfolding like that in stages. Um, very rich, very beautiful, very expansive expanding, or it can get blocked, if you like, at any point, and actually from a number of directions. So, for example, if I have a, a rigid, I don't know, uh, secular scientific materialist um, uh, conceptual structure, and that's my logos, and I absolutely don't refuse to give any um, 
validity or reality to the imaginal perception that I, that I might have, um, then that will cause me to dismiss the imaginal perception and disempower it that way so it cannot feed back into this whole soul-making enrichment process. So it could be an idea that's a, a, a kind of more, uh, if you like, existential idea. It could be an idea about who this person is. It could be a concept about what our relationship should be. I shouldn't look at them that way. Or it needs to fit into this box or, or whatever it is. Um, it could be also uh, something, uh, this, the possibilities are endless, but for example, a person might um, think, well, I've been practicing the Dharma for ages and uh, years and years and years. I know what the Dharma is. And if uh, something happens in my perception which pushes the boundaries and starts to want to expand the walls of what I've, how I've boxed in the Dharma, and so well, I, I'm an authority perhaps, uh, or I know what the Dharma is, as I said, and then it's actually coming from, if you like, the ego structure, the hardened ego structure that's creating walls that will not expand, because I don't want to. Uh, disrupt or threaten my self-view of knowing what the Dharma is or having it sorted out or being the one with answers or an authority or whatever it is. So this could come from all different directions. Or it might be that a certain image is refused. So in, in that, so it could come from the block can come from the direction of logos in all kinds of ways. It could come from the direction of the psyche. In other words, the image. I refuse that kind of image. It's too weird. It's too uh, whatever it is, dazzling. Um, it's too dark. Whatever it is. Uh, uh, and again, many many ways that can happen. But but a similar sort of arresting or blocking or constriction of this process will happen uh, of the whole soul-making dynamic and tendency to expand will happen um, it can happen being blocked through through the psyche direction you understand through the imaginal or the restrictions on image and it can be blocked through the restrictions on eros perhaps we feel that that energy uh, is too much we're not okay handling that desire perhaps there's been a certain psychological history with desire that we we tend to limit how much flows through us or the way it opens up that the, the bodily energies we're not comfortable with we don't trust or the way it opens the heart all of that so the blocks in the eros psyche logos dynamic unhindered it will just keep tending to uh, to expand in stages there's there's potentially no limit to it it's infinite uh, infinitely deepening infinitely widening infinitely complicating infinitely enriching enriching that's a word um, in potential but of course being human as we are it can get blocked it does get blocked in all kinds of ways hopefully just sometimes uh, you know, temporarily, and then we see, and then something either shatters um, and, and expands, or just expands gradually, or whatever. But other times, the blocks can be a little more uh, habitual, or uh, longer-lasting, etc. Okay, so this is really, really important, this eros-psychologos dynamic, and where it's a kind of fundamental concept that we'll uh, come back to 
um, again and again, you'll start to see how the small definition, in its um, uh, in the way that it kind of um, opens up this soul-making dynamic, um, is immensely powerful. When we can understand that, and you see how it applies everywhere in our life, potentially everywhere, every domain, dimension, aspect, and direction of our existence uh, can be brought in and involved um, in into the the uh, movement, the furnace, the the beauty of this dynamic. Okay, so really, really important. We'll keep coming back to this and use it as, a, as something that we kind of uh, draw, uh, relate everything to, put it that way, can relate all our experience to this, to this understanding. So that once we open up that understanding a little bit uh, and bring it to bear on our experience as it unfolds, um, we could also say that uh, okay, so we have this small definition of eros that we that we've defined that we've given twice now, but in a way, when we also use the word eros, because of its tendency to want to um, fertilize, stimulate, inseminate, ignite that soul making dynamic, that soul making process, and expansion, and opening, and complication. Um, it's almost as if eros really implies with it it involves with it already um, soul-making and so and thus the imaginal and soul. So if you like, there's a l- when, when we use that word era, sometimes we'll be meaning the small definition and sometimes we'll be actually meaning this kind of larger definition of the whole eros as it is in the soul-making dynamic, in the eros psychologos um, process of expansion and mutual <coughs> fertilization and feedback and enriching. So there's a kind of larger definition of eros with a kind of larger implication of what's involved with it. You understand? Now, we... Something should be obvious, I'll I'll mention it, um, that eros then is clearly not equivalent with meta. Um, I would say that eros, uh, similar to when we said soul-making, always involves love, some kind of love. It might not be obvious. We've talked about this before in other talks. Um, Eros, because it is involved with um, soul-making, involves soul-making, eros always includes some kind of love. Part of our job is to discern and to notice what kind of love, how is the love expressing, what's the character of it, the quality of it. But eros is, though it includes love, in a way it's it's more than love, uh, and and not equivalent with metta. It's more than just metta. Metta is sort of implicit in it. We'll come back to the relationship with metta in <coughs> a little while, but the relationship of eros and metta. But notice a few other things too. Eros, as we mentioned uh, the other day, is not just, as some people define it, and still some people define it following the Neoplatonic tradition, still some people define it as a movement towards union, unification, a movement towards oneness. Actually, if we draw out one of the implications of what we've just said, of the the way Eros um, operates in the soul-making dynamic, 
Eros actually um, it both needs and creates and discovers otherness. Eros is uh, implies and involves otherness, two-ness. So it it needs a, a, a polarity. Eros needs this polarity of something that it's attracted to. It needs that two-ness. But it also, in, in its whole movement, uh, it, as we said, it creates and discovers, or creates slash discovers, other aspects um, of the object. It creates more to the object. Rather than collapsing the object, or collapsing into the object in oneness, a sort of melting in white light together, or whatever it is, it actually creates more. Complication, facets, dimensions, etc. And it needs that to further stimulate the eros. So it needs this two-ness, it needs this otherness, this uh, facets and dimensions, this othernesses, plural, that are attractive to the eros, if you like. It needs it, but it also stimulates the creation and the discovery of more and more otherness. And if, as I said, this soul-making dynamic is just potentially infinite, it will just keep creating more and more otherness. There's a kind of tension there. There is the attraction towards, and partly there is an attraction towards melting at times, we'll come back to that. But at the same time, there's a need for otherness and two-ness, retaining the two-ness, retaining the polarity of the two, the subject and the object, the self and the beloved other, connected. I might even know that we're one, but I need to retain the two. The eros needs to retain the two, and it will stimulate further uh, and, and, and create uh, and discover more that uh, otherness, and more and more othernesses, in fact. Uh, so we'll elaborate this as we go. So intrinsic to, or implicit in in the movement of Eros, as it um, is allowed, or to the extent that it's allowed to fertilize the whole soul-making dynamic and be involved in the whole soul-making dynamic, is that it, it does create and discover more to the object, more to actually everything in the end. Um, so it creates slash discovers. It's a creative and a... Uh, creative process and a revelatory process, put it that way. Yes. Uh, there's a lot we could say this, but let's just <coughs> about this, but we let's just um, let's just say that for now. That part of that, though, implicit in what I've just said as well, is that implicit in the sense of tuners, and implicit also in the otherness that it creates and discovers and needs, is that there's a beyondness that's a part of the erotic connection. Again, it's a, it's a, a need, a necessity for Eros, and it's also a creation of Eros. It will create uh, some beyond what I already know, and it will discover a beyond what I already know and experience, which serves to attract the Eros more. Now that beyondness is not totally transcendent in the sense in the sense that, as I said, we still the eros still delights 
in the appearance that's there and in the connection that's there. So it's not, I want the beyond, who cares about this now that's, that's here, that's present, that's imminent in the appearance. Um, it's not a beyond uh, that's, uh, if you like, um, dismissive of, of the tangibility and the presence in the sensual appearance as it is right now in, in whatever stage of perception or imaginal perception. It delights in that, it includes in that, but there's also other dimensions, part of the dimensionality, there's a beyondness as well shining through or intuited or glimpsed etc and that's part of the whole uh, package of um, soul making part of the whole uh, constellation of eros and what eros constellates both a beyondness and a i don't know what the, the other word would be uh, a, a, a presence in the, the sensory uh, content in the imaginal perception in the appearance both are attractive, both are delighted in, both, uh, if you like, captivate the eros. So, there's a lot there. We're moving quite quickly, I'm aware of that. Um, we can bring this out more in the groups and the Q&As, etc., and the individual meetings as we relate it, as you start, and I would like you to really start trying to relate this to experience, your experience, as it unfolds, as much as you're able to help the digest uh, this and, and let these ideas and concepts, uh, let the Logos, in fact, be um, really fertile for you for the soul-making process. If we think about now the relationship between eros and equanimity there's quite a lot to explore there and unpack there and these may be words that we don't often think uh, don't imagine go together eros and equanimity what is the relationship are they mutually exclusive how does it work um, and Related to all that are questions about balance in practice, uh, equanimity being related to uh, a sense of balance, or rather balance being <coughs> one of the factors that's involved in a state of equanimity, equanimity implying a balance uh, of, of the consciousness of the chitta of the being. So what is the relationship between uh, eros and equanimity, and how might we support um, our navigation in these kind of practices so that there can still be a kind of balance there. And again, there's so much to say here, um, but let's, uh, let's just say a few things. This soul-making dynamic has, as I said, it, 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 it has a n natural inclination, when it's not hindered, to just keep kind of cycling on itself, growing, fertilizing itself, inseminating, giving uh, giving itself the eros, the psyche, logos, uh, the different dimensions, just just feeding more and more, giving themselves more complicated, giving each other more complication, more expansion, widening, deepening, everything that we've said, more enriching. Now that... Uh, process of expansion, that soul-making expansion, 
also wants to expand in different directions. So it's not just in the direction of Eros, in the direction of Psyche, in the direction of Logos, which anyway are really three aspects or connected uh, aspects of, of soul, you could say, rather than three separate things or mechanisms. Um, the Eros, Psyche, Logos, the soul-making dynamic also wants to expand in different directions. By which I mean, uh, and again, this is something to notice in the practice and really, really important for navigation. What sometimes happens, what often happens, is that, let's say we're working with an image and there's some kind of eros in relationship with that image, as there will be when an image is imaginal. Some kind of eros could be sexual, could be not sexual, whatever. And the... Soul-making process, the Eros Psyche Logos, starts to, as I said, to impregnate and uh, expand and create, discover more to the erotic object, more to the object, to the other. Oftentimes, what we don't notice in the imaginal constellation, uh, or other, we each have different tendencies here, but what can be quite common uh, is for some of us not to notice that at the same time, at the very same time that the object um, of the imaginal perception is expanding, the subject is similarly expanding. My sense of self is also becoming imaginally infused, imaginally enriched. I also become for myself an erotic object. Uh, The an image of myself is is part of the whole imaginal constellation. It includes self and other. It's not just other. Oftentimes our gaze is so uh, transfixed by the beauty of the other, or the awe, or the fear, or the um, weirdness of it, or, or just in attending to it out of habit, we put the attention on the object. So almost making the attention a little bit bigger to notice what's happening with the imaginal sense of self in this, in this practice right now, in this imaginal constellation. And you will begin to notice that the self too, as I said, is drawn in and impregnated, amplified, complicated, widened, enriched, deepened, in the, in the uh, uh, imaginal perception, in, in the web of the imaginal perception, it includes not just the object, but also the, 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 the subject. Not just other, but also self. And uh, it, this, this soul-making dynamic also wants to, again, naturally, to include the world. Its expansion into the world, in other words, the environment, the world around us, um, and the and and the fullness of the senses, is is just another way of referring to what we've talked about before: the process of cosmopoesis. That through this this beautiful other that I'm with, whatever it is in in the image, whoever she, he, they, it are. Um, that that becomes imaginally alive, imaginally deepened. There's the eros there. Also the self, and also the world. So th- this cosmopoesis is a natural uh, movement, the expansion outwards to include the world. It's like the imaginal perception spills over to imbue, to fertilize the perception of the world. Yeah, I'm not going to say too much more about cosmopoesis because we've dwelt on it a lot in the past retreats. 
So the imaginal constellation uh, includes not just the other, the object, the imaginal object, or this person who I'm perceiving imaginally, in other words, I'm including the imaginal dimensions in my perception of them, not just the other, but also the self and also the world, three aspects, and a fourth aspect, the eros itself. In other words, our very sense of the eros involved in relationship to the image, the imaginal, uh, the the, uh, eros with the image, neurotic connection with the image, that too begins to be subsumed, to be drawn into, to be imbued by the uh, imaginal erotic gaze. It's, it's, it's subsumed and drawn into the soul-making dynamic and the fertilization by Eros Psychologos. So that the Eros itself, that we are experiencing our Eros right now in relationship with this imaginal object, also begins to become imaginally alive. It start, we perceive it imaginally. It starts to have other dimensions. It itself can become uh, eventually a sense of theophany. The eros itself is sensed to be sacred, sensed to be divine in different ways. It also appears to us gradually unfathomable, mysterious, etc., inexhaustible in different ways. So this eros-psychologos dynamic, that three uh, three-faced. Uh, three-faced soul, I don't know, um, also wants to expand in this fourfold way towards object, towards self, towards world, and towards eros. Self, other world, eros. It wants to move in all those directions. It wants the, if you know, liquid analogy, the water of soul, the waters of soul want to flow in all those directions. Um, or, if you like a fire analogy, the fire wants to wants to spread in all those directions. The fire of soul making, the fire of uh, the eros and the erotic imaginal. Why am I mentioning this? Partly, it gives us a clue about navigation in practice, and partly, in other words, we can check. We can check at any moment. Am I? Uh, including, all I have to do is include it in my attention, just what's happening with the self. Uh, And sometimes just including the self-sense, the image of the self, in the attention allows it to to be fertilized by image and eros, and it comes alive, or the world, or whatever, or the eros itself. So sometimes it's just a matter of attention. Now we might have, um, as individuals, we might have certain habits of tendency um, so some people, the attention tends to be more habitually to the self and when they're doing imaginal practice and probably also in life as well. And they tend less to uh, uh, be able to keep the uh, awareness open to the object at the same time. Or vice versa. We're so, as I said, transfixed and captivated by the divinity of the object that we don't uh, pay attention to the self-sense. Um, and if we did, that would start becoming correspondingly um, divine. It would start to grow in divinity as well. So, you know, for example, if you're doing a devotional practice with a tantric deity or yidam or something, or, or just an imaginal figure that's kind of divine for you, and you could be, um, there's all kinds of possibilities there, but let's say just you're somehow resting in the lap of 
<coughs> of the Buddha um, or or Tara or whoever it is, um, you are being held by them. And they appear to have all the divinity, and I'm the human receiving their uh, love and their healing energy, whatever. If I dwell in that image, um, like just keep dwelling it and letting, just letting it do its thing by by the way I'm tuning, by the way I'm opening, by the way I'm sensitizing in the practice, opening the energy body, paying attention to the resonances. If I just let it do its thing, um, it will just be a matter of time before the sense of myself in that image, resting in the lap of the Buddha or being embraced by a divinity or loved by a divinity. But it would just be a matter of time before I start to feel my divine dimensions. The divinity in the image, the theophany, starts to um, spread or catch a light. So that not just this, this Buddha or this Yidam or whoever it is, this tantric deity, this imaginal figure, is divine, but I am both human and divine at the same time. I'm given dimensionality just through the soul-making process happening. So sometimes it's just a matter of attention. Other times we have um, a more long-standing tendency, and again there can be different reasons for this, for not being able to to um, open to a sense of for ourself as image. So we've reified the self and the other is image, and there's something blocked there in the whole soul-making dynamic. It wants to flow into the self. It wants to impregnate the imaginal perception of the self, give it dimensionality, beauty, mystery, unfathomability, inexhaustibility, divinity. (coughs) But I'm only, for whatever reason, whether it's habit or other reasons, I'm I'm only allowing it to go and and do its work and feel out and come alive in, let's say, one of these directions. For instance, just towards the object and not so much towards the self and not so much towards the world or the eros. So that there's a sense somehow, I have all this eros towards this div- person uh, that I'm perceiving, you know, with such beauty, that they have such beauty and depth of, of divinity, etc. Um, but I... Uh, I'm feeling myself as just a human and my eros is just maybe a little bit embarrassing uh, or or, uh, uh, clumsy or maybe even still remnants of the view that it's defiled or defilement in some kind of way. Just mixed in with that. Um, Or uh, the block maybe towards the world. The person's doing all this practice. I've touched on this in the the last retreat, re-enchanting retreat, doing all this practice good work on their psychological process and all this stuff, but the world in which it takes place in is just, just remains a flat world, remains unenchanted, because unimpregnated by the um, soul-making movement, the soul-making dynamic. The Eros hasn't uh, reached there to bring it imaginally alive. So it's worth checking, um, and a couple of things. One is, is there a long-term tendency there that uh, one has um, to, uh, to, to always lean one way? Um, and that's interesting to know about oneself. And then can I practice um, including the directions of self, other, world, and eros, where I don't tend to uh, lean habitually? 
or maybe it's just a momentary um, uh, imbalance, if you like, or non-opening in one of these directions. And what the practice needs in that moment is just, ah, oh, yeah, I can let it. I can let it include that, which oftentimes just means as just opening the attention there to include. Oh, let's include the self. So I'm, I'm aware of an imaginal constellation here, self and other, maybe self and other and world. And let it spread that way. you understand? So my experience uh, teaching and working with people with this stuff is is that this is not at all obvious, in fact. So we often don't realize <coughs> that this is uh, that, that the soul-making dynamic can open, uh, wants to open in all these different directions, is even potentially open if we would only notice it. And we might feel uh, stuck or m- m- more often we feel out of balance in some way or other. Or that something is very hard to tolerate, the eros is hard to tolerate, or we're uh, toppling over in some way. In other words, there, there isn't a kind of equanimity, there isn't a balance. But can you see, even if we use a kind of physical um, uh, analogy, can you see that if the flow of the eros want, uh, is allowed to go in these different directions towards the other, but also back, so to speak, towards the self and out to the world in all the different directions and to itself, then the whole movement, if you, again, if you think of water um, flowing, in it the directions balance themselves so that we're not toppled over towards the object or imploding in ourself or or whatever it is. So this uh, playing with this, adjustment, awareness, opening up to include that, to tune to this is crucial if we're interested in um, allowing the process to open more fully and have its full life and its full uh, power, if you like, uh, I mean efficacy, um, but also in terms of just navigating in a way that's actually balanced and um, sustainable. Related to that, I'll make another distinction. It's uh, close, but 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 different. And again, something to check. Something we might have individual uh, habit patterns around. Uh, again, either just out of habit or or for particular reasons. Um, I was working with someone a little while ago, and uh, she felt like that there was a lot of eros with with a certain image, etc. And there was too much intensity; it was hard for her to bear. She says almost she felt that it was gonna, just going to blow her fuses, or she'd just short circuit, or get too excited in a way that it just dissipates and uh, kind of fritters away. And uh, so I was encu- encouraging her to. Uh, what actually happened there was that she had become uh, captivated. Her attention uh, and consciousness had been captivated in not such a helpful way um, by the energetics of what was happening in her energy body, specifically around her heart area, with the eros and with the beauty and the opening, um, the sort of flame there. And it was hard for her to bear that flame. It was, it was and she felt it was getting too intense in a way that would just kind of um, explode the process. She would be left with nothing. 
and it wasn't that she thought she was going to go mad or anything like that. It was just it was just it felt um, so powerful that it was actually fragile. So uh, I, I kind of recognised this was going on, and also recognised that she hadn't realised that she she was putting. So, because she was so captivated by the intensity of the feeling in her heart, she act- actually at that time had given was giving less attention to the image. Funnily enough, so this is what actually started the whole thing was the image and the beauty and the eros there. And as the energy um, built with the eros in her energy body, then it started to give just less attention to the image. The attention on the heart area was actually um, putting it under too much pressure. There wasn't enough spaciousness in the attention uh, to uh, uh, to allow the energy to kind of move um, uh, more widely instead of being like so, so com- constricted it became like a pressure cooker in her chest. Now this opening can happen in two ways. The opening of the attention can happen in two ways. One is opening of the body, opening of the energy body. Now you should be familiar with this, opening the awareness, letting the energy, uh, the currents move uh, how they want to move within the energy body, just opening the awareness as well, giving the whole sense of the energy body more space. Because the awareness is bigger, the sense of the energy body will bigger. Uh, will be bigger, and the energy can flow how it wants to flow, in, out, up, down, whatever, round, spirals, whatever it wants to do. Um, That, especially when there's intense eros or intense sexual energy as well, it often gets caught somewhere in the body, maybe around the genitals, maybe around the heart, whatever, it could be anywhere really, But um, and it needs more space, it needs to be allowed to flow and um, fill a space or even move in or out of a space as it wants to do. So sometimes we don't give it enough space it, with the attention and it constricts and that becomes unbearably uncomfortable or intolerable, or throws us out of balance. And in order to have more capacity to hold what wants to move through us in terms of eros, in terms of energy, in terms of beauty and opening and all that, what can really help is actually just creating more capacity in the space just by opening the awareness and the energy body opens and allowing it and even helping it, imagining it flow. Uh, We've talked about this before on other retreats. But there's a second way the uh, awareness can open, or the attention can open, to help. Related to this example I gave of this woman working this way, and related to what I just said before about the constellation of self, other, world, and eras. And that is recognizing, for instance, in this case, she had too much um, uh, attention, was too tightly bound and kind of myopically focused on the energetic experience. It was like, wow, um, this is really intense. There was a lot of intensity there. But because it was so caught up, as I said, it actually felt like it was just going to dissipate somehow, discharge or short circuit. By, By then keeping aware, staying aware of the energy, giving the energy a little bit more room, but primarily, in this case, actually re-including the imaginal other. So including, again, uh, not just the energy body experience, which is vital to imaginal practice, as we keep stressing, um, but also don't lose track of the other. 
of the imaginal object, the, the erotic object, the beloved other. So then again, then you've got you've got a constellation there. You've got the imaginal other, and and again, I I start being interested in the attention gets interested again in their beauty etc not at the expense of my experience here either energetically or imaginally um, uh, so uh, but but not denying them either so there's this kind of openness and inclusion and the energy instead of all being caught up in the physical energetic body in one location can both spread through the body and also through the whole imaginal constellation of self and other and eventually world you understand so there's there's more um capacity there and that the whole experience can have more potency the whole soul making can be more potent so intensity is actually neither here nor there, and this goes for all kinds of meditation practice. Intensity, I mean, it can feel like a big deal, like, wow, something really important is happening. It may or may not be. What's more important is the potency. In this case that I've been describing, there was a lot of intensity, but there wasn't going to be much potency until she um, opened up that awareness to re-include and balance it, if you like, with the with the awareness of the the imaginal other and the beauty there and the erotic connection there. So we'd rather, any time there's a choice between intensity and potency, we want the potency. We want the soul making to fertilize the soul and open it. Otherwise, I just have an intense experience and then it's over. And so what? Nothing's nothing's stretched. Nothing's changed. Maybe even I get a bit freaked out or scared. So intensity can be, you know, lovely and organic part and remarkable of uh, organic part of the process and remarkable. But what we're more interested in is the potency, and that potency sometimes re- will require um, an intensity of experience as part of it, and sometimes it actually doesn't even need to be that intense. We can still have the potency. Sometimes we're something's gotten too intense because it's not balanced, that the awareness uh, is not spread in the, in the directions, um, balanced in the directions that it needs to balance in. So we're talking about balance, we're talking about navigating in the practice, developing our art, developing our skill. I should point out that, um, okay, so we've got self, other world, eros, an energy body, uh, and imaginal, and the, the emotions that are going on, and the desire and all that. It's not that all these elements, self, other world, eros, and energy, <coughs> image, emotion, desire, that they all need to be kind of, find this perfect point of static balance uh, and that they're always equally balanced where the attention is. Um, it's more that actually <coughs> understanding, having a conception that the, this is these are aspects of the total imaginal experience that we can pay attention to um, within our field. And at any time, we can kind of lean more or less and emphasize more or less any of those aspects. We can bring them into some relative balance, which doesn't necessarily mean equal balance. But we can move, say, lean more towards the object or more back towards an awareness of the self, and the image of the self, or more out towards the world, or all equally, or more towards the energy body or more towards the sense of the desire itself or more towards the image etc and and the whole thing is dynamic and fluid and there's a kind of dance there that's really an art rather than some kind of 
either a static um, ideal or, or some kind of formulaic thing. We can play with this, just as all, all practices play, it's finding out, seeing what the moment needs, what unfolds from which different emphases and how I lean. And that's part of the beauty and the fun uh, and the potential of practice. Now I should also add to all this um, that, of course, if we're talking about balance and equanimity, then what we've talked about already on uh, or what we will talk about more as well on the retreat, is um, that developing our skill in letting go, in dropping craving, in easing craving, uh, etc., when it arises, and just letting go of something, not being compelled to engage or give our attention to anything at all, um, that skill and capacity to let go is something we want to develop. For a lot of people um, doing this, they will have developed quite a lot of that before they even go into this, uh, these kinds of practices involving the erotic imaginal and the opening to desire. It's not always that things move in that order. Some people are actually open to explore this, practices of eros and opening to desire, etc., at the same time as they're learning practices of letting go and putting down and dropping, uh, etc., um, but there is a question here about what to practice when and what order in my life of practice I, I develop these um, different approaches, what order I develop them in. Uh, and, you know, the capacity for cultivating equanimity, for sitting in a really still, equanimous state, whether that's um, a kind of more absorbed uh, in jhana or more open to the multiplicity of experience, the taste for and the um, accessibility of equanimity in our life and our practice is really, really important. You know, it's really important. Uh, and it's, it you know, complements what we're exploring now, the kinds of things we're emphasizing on this retreat. But can you see, again, that um, if the Eros is allowed to do its thing and inseminate the whole soul-making movement, inseminate Psyche and Logos and re-inseminate Eros and spread out that way and spread out in cosmopoesis and include not just the other but the self and the world and the Eros itself, then, uh, from what I've said, can you get the sense how there's a kind of balance um, implicit in that? Um, and balance being characteristic of equanimity, there will be equanimity that comes from the eros being allowed to do its thing, not from shutting down the eros. So we tend to think either I'm in a state of desire or eros, or I'm in a state of equanimity. There's a way of going about it like that, but if I actually allow the eros, and will come talk more to allow the desire in different ways, then actually I can have an equanimous eros, if, if we use that language, or at least a balanced eros, let's say that. And if we allow eros to do its thing and open up in all these dimensions and directions and aspects that it, that it naturally, if you like, wants to and will open up, then you can also see that there's a kind of equality of things, as we've been alluding to, 
that not just the other, as we said, but the self also, and the world also, and everything in the world is involved in, drawn into, subsumed in, caught up in, um, imbued by this whole um, erotic imaginal process, the whole soul-making process and the, and the opening of the imaginal perception. So in the cosmopoesis and in that inclusion of all these aspects, there is an equality of all things. Everything becomes um, imaginally infused, imaginally alive, imaginally perceived. Everything becomes dimensionalized, um, unfathomable, inexhaustible, mysterious, beautiful, etc., etc. There is equality of all things. Now some of you will know that... Um, an equality of all things is one of the ways, particularly in the Mahayana tradition, they actually define equanimity. It's a regarding all, all things as equal. It's also in the Theravadan tradition. So these characteristics of balance and the equality of all balance of the being, balance in relationship, balance of relationships, and the equality of all things that comes to our, opens in our perception. These are characteristics of equanimity, by definition, uh, in, in Buddhist usage of that term. And they are also um, characteristic, if you can understand, of the whole soul-making dynamic, or the whole movement of Eros, when it's allowed to do its thing. When it's allowed to expand that way, when it's allowed to impregnate that way. There are certainly differences, um, of course, between eros and equanimity conceived in, in, a, in a Buddhist way. Um, uh, ero, uh, equanimity, excuse me, being one of the Brahmaviharas, shares a characteristic that all the Brahmaviharas have. Um, like metta, it actually moves in the direction of lessening fabrication lessening the perception of the other, lessening the perception of objects, lessening the self-other divide, the subject-object divide. All this, and if you know, if you've done dedicated um, meta practice over a while, you'll see that fading is characteristic. I and the um, object of my metta begin to melt into oneness, a oneness of being, a oneness of heart. We are one luminous heart together. This is the way metta goes. Deep equanimity practice being the quietening of the push and pull with all experience. I'm talking about equanimity towards phenomena now. Um, that leads, because of the quietening of the clinging, the push-pull there, it also leads to less fabrication. There's a quietening of the fabrication. Eros, on the other hand, in, in distinction to that, Eros actually moves in the direction of more fabrication, more beautiful and skillful fabrication. It's, um, uh, it's the path of, uh, if you like, tantra, if you like, skillful fabrication premised on, based on, um, involving an understanding or, uh, or a non-realism, understanding of the emptiness of what is fabricated. I know it's empty, therefore I can fabricate. I see image as image, therefore I fabricate. So in contrast to the fabrication of Papancha, which uh, has a kind of realism to it, I believe this thing is real, I believe whatever the uh, imaginary thing is or whatever, and all this proliferation, um, the fabrication that comes in, 
out of eros in in when it's allowed to impregnate the eros psyche logos dynamic um, is not based on realism. So it's this magical, beautiful, skillful soul making fabrication in contradistinction to uh, meta and equanimity, which tend to quieten the fabrication. So there's differences there. But this aspect of the presence or as absence of realism, this is, to me, this is really um, pivotal. I actually still haven't thought of good words for what, you know, what's a good word for an image or a fantasy when we believe them to be real. So I use the word image, and most of the time when I use the word image or fantasy in these contexts, I really mean an imaginal image. Uh, uh, an, an imaginal fantasy with everything that's implied by that use of the word imaginal in the way that we're using it. What might be a word for um, the kind of image or fantasy when it really is reified, it's not soul-making, it's taken as real, and it's kind of one-dimensional. It doesn't have that dimensionality, it doesn't have that um, seeing image as image. When... Uh, I realize this is this is difficult for people. Um, this whole what we're calling the middle way between uh, real and unreal. So it relates to the middle way of emptiness between is and is not. Uh, but there's a there's a similar middle way in terms of imaginal practice for me. Um, I often get nervous. Uh, when I'm with someone, actually whatever the relationship is, um, and they're using the language of images, etc., but it seems to be somehow um, there's quite a lot of ego in it and quite a lot of realism in it. Sometimes people use the language of divinity and soul, etc., but somehow it's just, talked about this before, it's just somehow about me and my process, and the reality of the self is still somehow really central um, there, even if they're using the language of, um, as I know some people use language of God's will, this or that, but actually it's all very rarefied, and the ego is actually getting quite solidified in that process. It's very dramatic, but it lacks that quality of, of theatre, of knowing that it's theatre. Personally, it makes me quite nervous, and I've seen some quite... Um, difficult and abusive things, I think, through that um, uh, people engage in that kind of thing. Um, by, in defining soul-making, you may remember from talks from another retreat, I actually included in the definition of soul-making an awareness that of seeing image as image. Um, I was very hesitant about that and thinking about... Um, for example, uh, Catherine and I were talking about Mother Teresa, who sees um, sees saw uh, pe- people as her beloved Jesus. Uh, so there's an imaginal perception there, um, or her whole concept of Jesus uh, and, and Christ and the c- c- Catholic doctrine, etc. One wonders, like, what her notion of real or not real there was. I'm actually not sure. But I sort of um, 
hummed and hard for quite a while and then just decided to land on the side of including that awareness of this is image, seeing image as image, this awareness of a kind of middle way between um, real and not real, including that in my definition of what is uh, soul-making and what it means to have an imaginal perception. There's a problem here, and it, it, you know I realize this is difficult for people. Um, if you say oh, image is image, or don't take it as real, then people just... Um, but when understandably it's difficult, go to the other extreme and sort of dismiss um, it's not real, therefore it's just delusion, or it's worthless, this image, or um, any sense of divinity I had is not real, therefore it's, uh, uh, it, it doesn't have its power. Um, it's a tricky one. You know, I think um, maybe, maybe this comes in stages for some people, and, and there's a journey towards that. I can just say that for now, that when I inhabit what feels to me to be that middle way, that raises edge between real and not real, either in regard to all things in terms of emptiness, or in regard to images and the whole notion of soul and divinity, that this ultra-narrow raises edge or tightrope, or what seems like that, actually ends up being incredibly powerful. Incredibly powerful in what it liberates in terms of the perception and the transformation and the dedication. And actually what appeared, I can't remember if I said this before, what appeared to be a really, uh, like there's no space either side and it's a very precarious balance, actually opens up. It's not narrow at all when you get inside that understanding and live it and feel it deeply in the core of one's consciousness, this middle way, that actually opens up a vast playground or dancing hall and there's so much freedom and power and beauty and room for movement and creative movement and dynamism uh, and energy that can come through there. I've alluded to this before, but, you know, just in terms of this realism thing, m- maybe you already know that kind of power, uh, to some degree at least, that kind of power, um, because it comes through in our relationship with art, we've touched on this before, in literature, a novel that you're reading, and something moves you so much, it's, you know it's not real, but it has some, uh, it still has immense power. Or poetry, we talk about poetic truth, we've been through all this before, or theatre, you know it's a theatre, I'm sitting right there, I know these actors, some of them are my friends even, something about it moves me in a way sometimes more than so-called reality itself, as we tend to think about it, or in movies or, or whatever it is. So there's a power, you can have a feeling of this power through art, and that's exactly what we're talking about. Um, or you might know it in your own Dharma practice that to whatever degree you have um, realized the emptiness of self, to whatever degree, and you know this self is empty, you still um, can engage yourself, think in terms of yourself, feel yourself, respect yourself, care for yourself, um, and others, others' selves, and selves that you care about. So this, the knowing of the emptiness doesn't make something worthless. It doesn't make yourself worthless. It doesn't, it's not only you throw something out. So you may have tasted, I know it's difficult, this, this what I call the razor's edge, or the tightrope of the middle way, um, here, uh, 
whether it's regard to emptiness, whether it's regard to the imaginal. But I think there's other avenues in our experience where we may already have a sense of how to um, how to come into relationship and occupy that middle way, how to be balanced there. It's maybe already in our life to a certain degree. But again, I, I acknowledge it's difficult, or it can be difficult. The thing about it, though, as I said, is it liberates. And where there is the seeing of emptiness, this neither is nor isn't, neither real nor not real, and seeing image as image, this allows the erotic engagement, allows the power and the potency and the magic of that and the captivation of that and the dynamic of that without being out of balance. So this out of out of everything is the most powerful thing that allows, so to speak, equanimity in regard to eros, balance, etc. It's that balance of the tightrope of the middle way, which turns out, as I said, to be a whole beautiful playing field, a whole dance floor, rather than a thin, uh, precarious tightrope balance. So it, the non, the seeing of the non-realism, together with everything that we talked about earlier, um, uh, the other aspects balancing them, but the seeing of the non the non realist seeing allows more opening more intensity um, etc if intensity is appropriate feels uh, appropriate to what 's going on allows more trust and allows us to move and navigate and dance with all this. I actually feel that that sense of the middle way, that sense of theatre, is actually right there in the imaginal perception. In other words, I I, I think it's intrinsic to it. And again, it's, it's one of these things that we begin to notice. It's like, oh yeah, if you ask someone, they're with an image, and it's clearly alive for them as an image in an imaginal way. So does it feel, would you say it's real or not real? And they say, well, I, I actually, no, it's not. It has some other category. It's palpable, um, endemic, intrinsic to the imaginal experience. And that's why I wanted to include it in what I call soul-making or imaginal experience. By definition, I feel it's intrinsic. Okay, very last thing uh, for now, and I realize it's a lot of info. <coughs> uh, hopefully this will be useful to you for some time. Very last thing. Um, with images in general, and with imaginal practice, the way I can, we're conceiving it, a lot is about my relationship with. Part of that relationship with means exactly what kinds of awareness and sensitivity and attunement I'm bringing to the engagement with the imaginal, to the erotic connection. So, as we talked about, it's like being aware, what's the, what's the natural register of this image? What, what, what register of substantiality or insubstantiality does it want to, to exist out, to, at, to play at? Out, I can play with that deliberately, but it might be also listening, attuning, sensitizing, respecting something. With regard to um, sexual erotic imaginal, uh, where it's clearly sexual and sometimes intensely sexual, um, or even from a normal sex, it's bizarrely sexual, um, whatever. You'll notice something else. Again, there's a lot of this is just stuff to notice, um, aspects to notice of imaginal experience. You'll notice that when we're entering into imaginal practice, and here's a sexual image, 
it doesn't tend to escalate in the way that, say, um, whatever an unimaginal sexual fantasy tends to escalate. You're daydreaming and you're thinking and whatever, um, then this person and then you have a fantasy and it all kind of heads in one direction, doesn't it? And uh, uh, there's a kind of escalation and movement towards a certain goal that plays out in the fantasy or whatever. What's characteristic of images in general and also uh, most, let's say, sexual erotic imaginal images is that they are more iconic, they are more timeless. So rather than escalating and having this kind of narrative movement in time towards some grand finale of um, orgasm or whatever it is, they tend to actually just be one thing or something that kind of stays more so to speak, static in time. It doesn't have this goal orientation. It's as if the image, um, when it's really imaginal, um, it could be whatever it is. I mean, it might be uh, sexual intercourse or, you know, whatever it is. But it tends to be, so to speak, sufficient unto itself. It might just be holding hands or it might be whatever it is. Um, sexually, but it doesn't have that kind of escalatory sort of propelling in time movement towards some goal. There's something iconic. This image in itself, you see there's a theophany and it doesn't need to go anywhere else. This is something we notice more and more and we start to trust it in relation to sexual images, in relation to strong sexual erotic imaginal images, but also in relation to the imaginal anyway. And a larger point connected with all that, um, I'm going to stop right now, is um, just that in time uh, we begin just to trust the imaginal soul-making process itself more and more. So no matter how bizarre, how strange, how unusual, how intense, how, how not intense it is, or whatever, um, we, we, we get the sense more and more that there is something bigger than us here. There's a movement bigger than us, an intelligence, an autonomy bigger than us, at the same time as we understand it as a dependent arising, on the way of looking, etc., and the concepts we bring. But there's something so to speak, from a certain point of view, bigger than us that we can trust. We start to trust the imaginal and trust soul-making, trust where it leads us and what it, what it brings us and the beauty of it. And that also includes uh, trusting uh, what appears to us as dark or weird or bizarre. We've been through all that before. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.